Hi, this is Maria Walsh and welcome to the Parachute Candidate podcast. Joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Gladys Ganiel, Professor of Sociology at Queen's University. Dr. Ganiel focuses her work on the role of religion in conflict in both Northern Ireland and Zimbabwe, as well as Catholicism in Ireland, Evangelicalism and the emerging church. And most recently, her work has focused on religion in societies emerging from COVID-19. She has written several books and has lived on the island of Ireland since 1999 and in Belfast, Northern Ireland since 2006. This is an important conversation because religion is difficult to discuss, but to me, an important area to lean into and learn from. Like many growing up in Ireland or to Irish parents overseas, I was raised Catholic and was educated in Catholic schools. My faith and finding God in my daily work has remained steadfast which often surprises some folks when they learn I'm a member of the LGBTI plus community and I'm pro-choice. But this is why I really believe this conversation is imperative. I don't always understand the vast complexities of faith and religions and I can't rhyme off verses of the Bible and I absolutely do not always follow the sermon at mass. But that doesn't mean I'm not religious, does it? Why does our world feel so uncomfortable right now? And we are witnessing, both online and offline, a polarizing world with religion being used as one of the categories used to divide us. My conversation with Dr. Gladys Ganiel today is significant. Gladys is American-born, and as mentioned, she has lived on the island of Ireland since 1999. We discuss her upbringing, her career to date, and the issues impacting religious orders. She weaves us through the history and the current state of play of religion on the island of Ireland. In recent Irish Times interview she shared, religious identification tells you something, but mass attendance and church attendance tells you more. Here's our conversation. But thank you very much, Gladys, for for gifting time and being involved in The Parachute Candidate, which is the podcast about bringing more conversation, ideas, challenging the bias and stereotypes that we have to certain issues. And, And religion is one of those issues. For me here in the European Parliament, it often gets used as left and right conservative or or free-spirited this loose language about how it plays a role in politics how it doesn't and really I, I grew up Roman Catholic going into a church or I attend Loch Derg, which is which is in Ireland for anybody listening outside of Ireland I, I like to go to these spaces to find find time and and root myself I'm a big Camino walker too so for me all of those journeys make sense but I, I have been challenged myself in terms of historically where the church has been in terms of Roman Catholic, where it is now. And as someone who's LGBTQI, I often get challenged. Like, how can you sit somewhere and hear a preach that's not inclusive of you? But I I jokingly always say, you know, we always have issues with middle management. You know, and when I get to the pearly gates, what I've done on the world is what is, is will ultimately determine what comes next or not next. But for you, Gladys, I'd love to hear your story. How faith is so important to you, what that means to you, and ultimately, yeah, just just hear from you. I'll, I'll start at the beginning, in a way. Um, I grew up in rural Maine in the United States. So Maine is on the East Coast by Canada. And um, my parents took me to a, a small Baptist church, um, so quite evangelical, if we want to use that term, and, and conservative and, and, and so forth. 
Um, at the same time, that faith was like a positive aspect of my life. You know, I suppose talking about as a child or a teenager, or, you know, you felt you experienced the presence of God and these sorts of things. So um, that was important to me. Um, jumping ahead quite rapidly, um, I was, uh, I still am I, a runner and I got an athletic scholarship to go to Providence College. Now, some listeners may be aware that that is a mecca for Irish runners. <laughs> the coach there is Ray Tracy, brother of Olympic silver medalist John Tracy. So in Providence, um, I was surrounded by Irish people, really. And every once in a while, they would have conversations about um, Ireland and the Catholic Church or Northern Ireland and the Troubles. Uh, and so forth. And this was in the late 90s. So I was in Providence. Um, I graduated in 1999. So the year before I graduated, Good Friday Agreement was signed. And of course, George Mitchell is from Maine, my home state. So the mediator of the Good Friday Agreement was someone who had come and spoken at my high school, you know, when I was in, in high school and, and that. So those are that combination of experiences, you know, religion being a positive thing in my life and the experience of God being positives in my life and then being in Providence um, and the peace process kind of unfolding during that time um, sparked my my interest. And um, when I finished as an undergraduate there, I had a scholarship that allowed me to study anywhere in the world. And um, so I went to UCD and did a master's in politics and then stayed on there um, to do my, my PhD where I and looked at uh, evangelicalism in Northern Ireland. And of course, myself, having been brought up in an evangelical tradition, and I was fascinated by how that had played out in another part of the world. And Ian Paisley, um, I suppose the evangelicals who had started to critique Paisley and the way he had mixed religion and politics and how they had then tried to, I suppose, reform their own faith tradition to try to be one that was, I suppose, more interested in peace building and reconciliation and and so forth. Can I ask, you know, just for those listening who are hearing like evangelical, the, the different types of religions, because I got I to gotta give it to you, you know, there's times where I'm like, I don't understand the difference. And perhaps yeah. it's too simplistic to where it's where I walk into a space and I'm like, I either feel at home in it or I feel not. And, and that's ultimately yeah, where yeah. I decide to remain or, or, or go. But for you, what is the differences for those listening? I suppose, I mean, I can give you an academic definition of evangelicals. I mean, it probably won't surprise you that people, academics have argued about this for decades, right? But um, David Bemington, who's a historian, had this fourfold definition. And I think it is helpful as an orientation. So one of the aspects is that evangelicals believe you have to be converted or maybe would use that language be born again, have this experience where you I suppose, consciously become a Christian. You know, you, you can't kind of be born into it. You have to have that experience yourself. The Bible is very important. So some evangelicals would be literal interpreters of the Bible. Others, you know, would say the Bible is inspired, but would, you know, add that it, it doesn't have to be literal as it were. So there's, you know, there's disagreement with evangelicalism itself. Um, there's a strong emphasis on, you know, the his, that crucifixion and resurrection of Christ as a historical event. And then the, the fourth aspect is that evangelicalism would have a very activist component. So that might be in the form of trying to convert people. And, um, I mean, in the North, there's, there's still the street preachers who go out and, and so on and so forth. So that emphasis on conversion, but not all evangelicals would say that's the be all and end all. Others would see their faith acted out through you know, social justice, social action campaigns. So faith isn't something that's private. It's something that has to make a difference in the world. So those four broad areas um, would 
I suppose, encapsulate evangelicalism. But within it, there's a huge diversity. Because as I said earlier, on the one hand, you had E.M. Paisley. And then on the other hand, you had people who called themselves evangelicals, but literally saw it as part of their vocation or their mission from God to critique what Paisley was saying and to say, you know, that's not really being true to Christianity or being true to our tradition either. So it's it's a diverse movement. And I feel often it gets caricatured as the right wing um, element as well, because that's what garners, I suppose, the most uh, attention. Because, I mean, I sit in, in the European Parliament, I sit in the European People's Party, which again, over the 2019 campaign, I, the only time sitting in an EPP group ever came up was around my sexuality in terms of how can you sit with quite quite a, a Christian democratic group and then issues with one or two other countries that weren't showing Christian democratic values in terms of Hungary and Poland, particularly around LGBTQI yeah. rights or, or various other various other issues. But I always, someone had told me, well, the EPP is a broad church. You know, we are a broad church mm-hmm. and we have various different uh, religious beliefs. And uh, and for me, that became super interesting, particularly when we hear debate and we're discussing certain things too within the group and how much more it's becoming, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, it's, it's being weaponized, as is minority groups and, and religion being that, well, I'm this and this is where I stand. And and perhaps it's because of the bubble I'm in, you know, right now. And I'm super conscious of even my language around religion because of, yeah, of the privilege I sit in the parliament. But yet when I go to a church or a spiritual place, you know, it's how you show up as a person versus the type of layers of life you're living, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think, I suppose... um there's a difference between what you're talking about, the politicized and the weaponized religion, and then what people experience as believers or in their everyday religious lives. So within the field of the sociology of religion, which is where I do a lot of work, there's a whole kind of subfield of everyday religion. And it focuses just on the simple things people do every day to connect with God, to connect with others, to serve or, or whatever. And it's, I mean, I must say it's totally divorced from um, that politicized element. But it, if you only see that politicized element, it doesn't really capture what religion is all about for the vast majority of people. Back in the 1990s, now this has changed in the United States because things have gotten very polarized there, but back in the 1990s, um, Christian Smith, a sociologist of religion, did like a study of evangelicalism. And even at that time in the 90s, you know, there was this idea that it was all right wing. <laughs> but in his study, actually, found when he talked to these people, you know, it wasn't as um, stark as, you know, people have been led to believe. Now that has changed somewhat because things have become more and polarized and more politicized. But now what you get in the United States is people talking about um, white Christian nationalism. And that, so that's a, a new term that's come up in the last few years or whatever. And that probably more accurately than evangelicalism captures that politicized dynamic of it. Um, so there, yeah, we have to, I think, make these, you know, these distinctions when we're, we're thinking about faith, um, uh, and so forth, because to only focus on the political doesn't really capture uh, what it's all about for the vast majority of people who pray or turn up to um, a religious service or go on a pilgrimage or, or whatever it is they can do. I, can I ask then, picking up from that, like, why is religion then so important to you now in 2023 and ultimately the importance of religion in the world? So like a twofold, and do you see them connected? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose from the point of view of, um, you know, being an academic, his profession is to study religion, you know, it better be important. Yeah. <laughs> but it'd be, it'd be, it'd be hard term, to do every day. And Jack, I suppose I'll speak specifically first about the island of Ireland. So, you know, everybody's aware that religion is declining. Less people are going to church. It's social and political influence is waning. We're, everybody's aware of those trends. At the same time, Ireland is still one of the most religious places in Europe and particularly in Western Europe. So you've got that dynamic going on, which is interesting. Um, so it's an interesting struggle, I suppose, um, between those who um, remain religious and those who don't. And of those who don't, those who have no ill will towards religious and those who are quite hostile to it, perhaps due to their uh, experiences. Um, and then there's also in Ireland, there's the historical legacy of religion, which is really important. And this historical legacy, it's, I, I, I would use this term haunting. It really haunts the whole island. And I think there's two main ways that the historical legacy of religion does this. This is through, and I'll call them sins, really, just to use the language, the sin of sectarianism and the sin of abuse. These are huge things that um, the churches as institutions and, you know, individual Christians um, participated in creating sectarianism and creating these cultures of abuse. And then if they didn't directly create them, perpetuating them or turning a blind eye or whatever. I mean, everybody to a certain extent was implicated in these two big <laughs> sins. And the, the structures, not just the ideas, you know, the bigoted ideas of sectarianism or the theologies of power that justified abuse, not just those ideas, but the structures that were created by religious institutions working in tandem, both north and south, with people in power in governments or whatever, those structures remain, right? They remain in our schooling and they remain in our healthcare, particularly in the north, they remain in where people live, you know? So that the religion has shaped <laughs> all that. And those two sins haven't really been um, dealt with by the churches. Um, I mean, in recent years, we, there have been loads of apologies um, so there have been apologies for abuse. So in the Republic of Ireland, the state has apologized for abuse. Various cardinals, archbishops, etc., have apologized. Pope Francis apologized. His apology when he made his visit here in the Cedars Park, that was probably the best apology of them all. You know, it's, he seemed to, to have named the, the sins better than the most of the other apologies. So there's been those apologies. And then even the church leaders have apologized for, I suppose, their role in sectarianism as well. So 2021... And the four church leaders and the president of the Irish Council of Churches had this statement where, you know, they apologize for putting the idols of state and nation before, and um, you know, the Christian duty to love one another. Basically, that's not the exact words they use, but they did use that word idol, uh, which was important. So we've had these apologies for these, these sins, I suppose, but at the same time, the structures remain. And because the church's influence has declined, not everybody noticed <laughs> these apologies. Or if they didn't, it's like some of the ones, particularly some of the ones for abuse, weren't actually very good apologies either. <laughs> the language is about, was a bit, you know, if we have caused any hurt, this, this sort of thing. So the apologies aren't adequate, yet the legacies of sectarianism and abuse haven't really no. been adequately addressed by the churches. And until that happens, those ghosts of religion past, if we want to use that, that term, we're going to just haunt the island and it really um you know is this can be a stumbling block to people who maybe are searching for um as an experience of god or a spirituality uh, as well 
I mean, that just as you were, you, it gives me a, a segue into asking you about Northern Ireland and, and multiple countries that, that face, I mean, America too, mm. that faced the impact of, of maybe two religious religions, particularly on the island of Ireland and how that has dealt with now. We know, which I'm really excited about or always proud about, our national, like my local national school in South Mayo, a small village called Shrew, when we, we were... I was born in Boston, Massachusetts and moved to Ireland when I was uh, seven to the small community, you know, classic national school across the road is the Catholic church, the football field, yeah. the post office is down the road, you know, um, sweet shop, all those great things uh, that bring up that, that, that uh, rural mm-hmm. upbringing. And it was never a, a pick and mix as in you went to yeah. that national school and then you went to the secondary school because predominantly it was um, it was Catholic led, uh, so Nano Nagel inspired our primary or our national school, St Joseph's National School. Is my uh, sorry, Nano Nagel inspired my secondary school, and our primary school is called St Joseph's, built on the Catholic teachings. Fast forward now to twenty twenty three, where we have multi nationalities, multi dominations, and that's really exciting. But ultimately, then you're left with on 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 one level this collective working together and then on a very different level historically as you mentioned in terms of polarizing of 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 religions particularly in northern ireland like how do you explain that because i'm conscious as we hear more and more about northern ireland particularly around the brexit negotiations and then as we're building towards this narrative of an island um on whether whether it will combine and join or or not you know, religion is the beating heart of that, still quite energized and often really broken thought process, I think, um, where we absolutely can live in unison. We have been doing it. It just hasn't been done by all. Like, what's your thoughts on on that? As I go around the house, Gladys, in terms of trying to explain it, I, I, I get so confused sometimes myself in how do you, when someone in Europe asks me, what's going on in Northern Ireland? Why can't you all get together? I mean, it's it's not as simple as that. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose um, the thing I always, you know, when we get the new group of uh, particularly master's students in who are quite often international students, um, there's kind of two broad positions, you know, simplistic positions. One is that religion is the cause of every bad problem. And the other is that religion doesn't matter at all. (laughs) Um, But the thing is that it meets somewhere in the middle in Northern Ireland, you know. Um, It's not, you know, there's a religious difference. And in some ways, that religious difference is, you could call it a marker. And it's a marker that marks out also differences in um, ethnicity and political allegiance and and historically power as well. So, you know, obviously, especially since the Good Friday Agreement, the balance of power between, you know, nationalists, Catholics and Unionist Protestants has has changed, you know, that for um, half a century or more, um, Protestant Unionists had, you know, the most substantial power um, as, as well. So the, the trick, I suppose, is trying to understand where religion fit in all that, you know, and historically what religion did was it provided some of the ideas that justified difference. And it also, particularly on the Protestant side, provided the ideas that justified, um, you know, power and some of the for some of the theologies and such that were, I suppose, used to justify um, I suppose settlement and colonization are similar to what the, the Calvinist settlers who went to the United States use. You know, we are a chosen people coming to a, prod- uh, a promised land. This God has given us this land. And, you know, therefore, 
we, it is rightfully ours in a sense. And that was the same sort of narrative you got um, from the pilgrims in the United States. You know, this idea in the States, it was called uh, Manifest Destiny or a City on a Hill that justified the colony, well, the westward expansion across the United States. And there was a similar um, theology um, where Calvinist concepts of the chosen people and the elect and the, the covenant um, with God for this land were, were used to justify and um, well, conquest really. So you had the theological uh, justification uh, for for settlement, really, and then you had churches and um, seeking out relationships with political power. Both the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches did this um, on the island of Ireland, and that um, seeking of political power then made sure that the churches were embedded in the structures of society that had perpetuated uh, the divisions and, and so forth. And I mean. In some ways, you know, the historical relationship um, between the churches and political power in Ireland, it's very, it's not unusual. This, you know, in the rest of Europe, they were state churches. This is what, <laughs> this is what churches did everywhere in Europe, you know, sought uh, political power and political influence. Um, but, you know, in the last um, century or more, you know, there's been a Christian theological critique of that. You know, this was not um, what, the church is called to do. The church isn't called to seek power. The church is called to, to serve and critique power. And, you know, if um, there's the temptation to become very close to political power, become close to the state, to try to, I suppose, get conformity and get um, people to come through the church doors or whatever. But, yeah, you know, the critique is that that was A, wrong, and B, actually doesn't really work in terms of, um, you know, nourishing a a population of people who then can have an authentic experience of God and an authentic um, spirituality as well. And I mean, in some ways, you know, the churches have moved away from that seeking of power, whether it's down to, you know, a sincere, heartfelt critique that this is the right thing to do or it's out of necessity because <laughs> that, that power has been lost and it's not coming back. It's probably a combination, you know, of, of both of those things. Um but in terms of, you know, if the churches um, want to have some sort of societal role, it can't be one that I think, I, th I don't think it can be one that sort of seeks out power. It's one that has to have a distance from the state so that it can critique um, the abuse of power or wherever that, that may be. Do you um, think they're moving towards that? Well, some are, you know, some are. <laughs> and, but the, I suppose the, the, the flip side of that is, you know, that move may be happening, but at the same time, it's not felt. The, uh, it's not being felt and people aren't listening anymore, <laughs> you know. Um, and, but actually, to be, to, to be honest, um, in the North, it is a bit different. So the, um, the church leaders and coverage of religion in the media and so forth, I think, is a bit uh, more now than it would be in the South, yeah. you know. Um, and you actually even got that a bit during the, the pandemic. Um, and this is uh, reflected in the way I think that the governments, North and South, interacted with the churches around lockdown restrictions and so forth. And um, in the South, it seemed to me that, you know, the government dictated and the churches basically oh. <laughs> uh, did, did what, what, whereas in the North, there was more of a give and take relationship. And while ultimately the restrictions in the North were very similar to what was in the South, it was a less... It was a more negotiated relationship. So the churches at one point voluntarily said, look, we'll close. You don't have to make us close, you know, said to, the, you know, to the, the Northern Ireland and government and, and so on and so forth. So 
there was a less maybe um, uh, hostile, and well, hostile is maybe the wrong word, but a less dictatorial relationship with the government in the North and the churches during the pandemic than maybe you had in the South, kind of reflecting the greater still societal influence um, of the churches here in the North. Can can I ask, and and, and I hope you just roll with me on this one because uh, uh, this this might need to be super cut. So throwing in some pop culture references here, you know, I grew up in a household that one of my favorite programs was Seventh Heaven because I was really inspired by the preaching and, you know, using everyday examples I understood them more. Like I could see them and it, it, they didn't yeah. seem so lofty or so foreign to me. And then you have things like, and, and actually there's a beautiful church in Rathmines that I used to go to in college that their Sunday evening service used to be very similar. Like you would see the priest come off the altar and it was about, here's the lessons from the gospel and this is what I suggest to go through or, for the week. And and I actually loved it because it was around every day showing up as as a Christian, which is where I, I try and I, I try and go. People listen to probably be like, God, I didn't realize she's this uh, religious, but uh, it's more <laughs> about everyday good practices and showing up as an authentic person. Yeah. So, uh, and then you have the other flip of the coin and not to only focus on the negative, but to try and get your understanding on this is then you have the likes of Spotlight movie and you have Magda Laundries mm. and you have yes. um, the wealth of church and particularly in countries that I visited in Africa where the wealth parameter is so different. Like how do how do you say I'm a master's student coming in from overseas? Like how, how do you how do you teach about that? Like how do you offer the balances between both there? Well I mean I think it's I think power. I've mentioned power a good few times today. Power is a good concept here when we're we're thinking about these things. And um you know churches are institutions and institutions, any good sociologist will tell you kind of Create are created and then they kind of exist to perpetuate themselves. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And one way to perpetuate your institution is to seek and gain power and resources and as much those resources and wealth as you can to explain it, assure your continuance. Yeah. So in some ways, I mean, churches like any institution have done what institutions do. Um, I mean, if you have an idealistic vision of the, that the church should be of primarily of service to the poor, <laughs> you know, you could ask yourself why um, has the, this critique not gotten through and, we, and we've had these abuses of power. But I think power there is, is a key concept in helping people understand and also understand, you know, the temptation of power and what institutions need to do um, to try to step back from that and be self-critical um, and so forth, which is by no means an easy task. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff that's been written about the churches during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, so the, I suppose, the clerics and the lay people who were, you know, really prominent and enthusiastic Christian peace builders were on the margins, really, of the institutional churches. And John Brewer, who's a sociologist at Queen's as well, he called them mavericks, you know, to indicate that they didn't quite fit in with their institutions that well. So while someone like Ken Newell, a Presbyterian minister, or Father Jerry Reynolds at Clonard Monastery. Of course, they're embedded within their church, but they're kind of mavericks on the margins because they were, you know, to a certain extent, critiquing what the churches had done wrong and then trying to live out an alternative picture of what the churches should be doing. They're critiquing that abuse of power, you know. Um, so what I would say to students, you know, it's about a tradition being able to critique itself, critiquing how it has sought power when it 
probably shouldn't have, and also been able to critique the ideas or the theologies or the narratives that were used to justify that power, and then to use the resources from that tradition to, ha- to come up with a new vision. And I mean, what that what an evangelical would do, right, is go back to the Bible and say, well, this is where you have <laughs> interpreted that part of the Bible wrong, and this is what um, we what what we think uh, that we should be doing now. So you're using that that emphasis on the Bible. And there's a, an American theologian. Methodist called Stanley Hauerwas, and there's this line he has that always has stuck with me, and it's about the churches in the West, right? Because the churches in the West have sought power, you know, and and took that that power around the globe with colonialism and so on and so forth. And as the process of secularization accelerates, his his line was that, um, the churches of the West aren't dying; God is killing them <laughs> as kind of a consequence of that pursuit of power and inappropriate pursuit of power. And then the task then of Christians here in the 21st century is to look at that and look at the broken pieces, I guess, and try to save what needs to be saved to build something, um, you know, more appropriate, I, I, I suppose, that um, enables um, a Christianity that, you know, that serves the poor, looks out for the marginalized, and um, is alert to the abuses of power. Because, I mean, we should never forget that uh, Jesus lived in the Roman Empire where there was a, a, a huge abuse of power. And that was his experience and the experience of um, his disciples. You know, they lived in a, an oppressive empire and the religion that they founded was a response to an oppressive empire. So this is where my brain explodes because then I have so many more <laughs> questions and we could be here for like five or six more hours. But <laughs> when we look at everyday social issues. So I'm thinking the minority minority groups that are often on the attack or being attacked is probably my better phrase. Um, so LGBTI plus community, women's rights, and I don't mean around sexual reproductive rights or access to abortion services. I'm actually talking about the role of women and how over many years and for generations, the Catholic guilt often felt harder on the shoulders of women uh, than they did on on others, and you know, in in that purity piece fell on women and not not men, and the imbalance of that. Then to people of 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 color, people uh, who use addiction, uh, be it alcohol or drugs, and may I also include food in that because I think that is a, yeah. a very uh, a very serious source of addiction too. Like wrap that up into religion now. Like, how do you explain that then to, I'm going to keep with the student because I, I am your student today, but how do you wrap that up to a student? Because I hear quotes quite often, unfortunately, you know, on one hand, it's like homosexuality wasn't even in the Bible in, 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 from one person. The other is, well, it actually is in the Bible and it's in it a lot and it's a sin. Mary Magdalene, in one sense, was a witness to, to Jesus Christ and was one of his lay people. On the other hand, she shifted to be a prostitute and a very dirty person from another narrative I heard. Now, with this sense, may I also put my hands up and say, I did not go actively researching different things in that because I I didn't. And call that lazy, lazy guide to spirituality, which is wrong. And hence the reason why this is such an interesting conversation to me. But how, how do you how do you encompass that or how do you teach that with the lens of religion? I mean, I suppose what I tried to say is that sometimes you get this view that religion is a thing and it's all worked out. So there's doctrines and there's beliefs and this is what the church believes and this is what the church believes and Catholic Church believes this, the Presbyterians believe this, Church of God believes this. But 
that's not really true <laughs> to a certain extent. There may be things written um, in the Westminster Confession of Faith or in canon law or whatever, and those may be official documents. But for me, as a sociologist of religion, vast majority of the people in the world who practice Christianity have no idea what those documents say, <laughs> right? Does that make them any less of a Christian? Does that blunt their experience of God? I mean, I don't really think so. So some of these, the things that you've, you've mentioned come out of those official documents and the people within the institutions who have power and have voice and have coverage <laughs> of what, um, you know, what these documents say and have so, you know, authority to interpret them. But if you look and draw back to that everyday religion position that we've talked about earlier, you know, most people have, you know, they, it's not that important to them in terms of the way they live out their Christian lives or practice their spirituality or whatever. So trying to get away from the idea that religion is only what the people in power in the institution or the so-called official documents say. It is that, but it's not only that. So I think that distinction can be helpful um, for students. And also to keep bear in mind that even those official things change all the time, right? <laughs> you know, um, you get these ideas that religion is unchanging for centuries. It's, it's just not. There are councils and um, general assemblies that people leaked and they make a decision and things are changed, right? So when was 1972? Was that the year the Presbyterians decided to ordain women in Ireland? I think so, <laughs> you know? And so then all of a sudden, you know, women can be ordained in this, this denomination, you know? And that was a decision that was made after study of scripture and prayer and so on. And it was a change, you know? So religion changes all the time. And I think that's really important for people to, to remember because there's often this idea that it, it doesn't. And what was, you know, not acceptable 50 years ago is now a norm. Um, you know, say, for instance, the women's ordination and some of the, the Protestant denominations. And that brings me back to, you know, you mentioned women in particular. Now, women and religion in Ireland is really quite interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting everywhere, but in the West, within Christianity, across all countries, basically, women are more religious than men in terms of the way that we measure religiosity. They tend to pray more. They tend to go to religious service more. They tend to identify as religious more than men. But in Ireland, that is not really the case anymore, particularly in the Republic of Ireland. It is, it's, it is the case in the North. Women show higher levels of religiosity than men. But in recent years, in the, the South, that has, has pulled back a bit. And women have more equal levels of religiosity with men now, which is un, unusual. And um, there, I think there's something going on in Ireland with the way, you know, women were, were treated, you know, they weren't treated well in Christianity in a lot of contexts. But in Ireland, it maybe was particularly bad, um, you know, with the Magdalene laundries and all the, the things um, that you have mentioned. I mean, there was a, a survey um, that was done um, by someone in Trinity College back in the early 2000s. And it was, yeah, 2010. And this study found that 74% of Irish Catholic women thought that their church did not treat them with a lot of respect, but only 6% of Protestant women in the Republic felt that way. I mean, that is a huge difference in terms of how women felt they were being treated by their churches. And there's not been much research done in Ireland in terms of this emerging phenomenon of women, you know, not being more religious than men as they, as they were in the past. But I think that's, it's a fascinating area that, that needs more research, to be fair. Yeah. Gladys, you're, 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 you're encouraging me to ask more and more. Yeah. Um, can, 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 staying with that, the future, you've a, <laughs> you've a, you've a crystal ball. Um, <laughs> 
and our our relationship with religion in any shape or form in terms of how one stays within their their spirituality. And I say spirituality not ignorantly. I say it as as an encompassing term for all uh, because it's. I, I would hope a lot more listen to this podcast and this important conversation that it's not just Catholic or uh, or Protestant or evangel. You know, it's multiple. You know, I I uh, for for full share with people listening. You know, I had. I, I attend as many masses as 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 I can, uh, and and in times want to. I mm. you'd find me in a church lighting a candle, taking a moment. I struggle sometimes to sit with long eulogies be- that that doesn't have today's reference points into it because I get my brain gets yeah. lost. I I really I deep down I'm in a I'm in a rabbit hole right now that my 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 therapist uh, Cloda had shared with me around Newman. Oh, his first name's gone for me. Uh, John Thank Henry you. Newman, uh, Henry Newman, <laughs> uh, who who who's a really fascinating person to listen to. You know, as I shared, I I will make a pilgrimage this summer to Loch Derg. It was my la- last year was my first year. I, I'm trying to look for merits here, but it, it's sounding like that. But I, I'm not really. It's more I I try and go find solace in places where spirituality has been held and is still held. But last year I was really taken back by heading to Loch Derg for my first time. Uh, and for everybody, just 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 look it up, Loch Derg. It's it's a fabulous experience. I went out for the three day uh, the three day parade, as I like to call it, and it it was it was amazing. Actually, so fully I came back more refreshed than I could have on a sun holiday. Yeah. And for me, prayer is meditation. In some cases, yeah. I do remember walking around the church in Loch Derg, and some chap whispered to me, going. You seem to walk around that a lot faster than I did, and I was like, "We all have very different rosaries. Don't don't be comparing now." And as someone who is a pioneer, so I abstain from alcohol and other substances. I, I'm I proudly wear my pin, and for those listening, Pioneer Association is associated with the Catholic Church. You their belief is through daily prayer, which I'm a little bit touch and go on. Daily prayer and uh, abstaining support someone who can't abstain from alcohol and other substances throughout their life. So you do it as a, an act of service. And I mean, ultimately, a phenomenal speech was made in my presence when I was 12. And, and that for me, when I made my confirmation became my mother would like to say it's because she's a pioneer and, and she inspired me. But it was it was multiple, particularly a, a woman called Eileen McCarthy. But I say all of that because you don't walk into any church now on a, on a Saturday night or a Sunday. Uh, or to Loch Derg and see too many people, particularly young people. Yeah. And I'd love to get your sense on that because there's a few fold here. I think COVID-19 has played a big part and yeah. I'd love to hear your to- thoughts on that. I think the speed of which social media and life has and the fact that our purpose is busyness now. And I generalize here, so apologies to anybody I might be insulting who lives a much slower paced life by choice. I mean, yeah. I, I don't. And that's a choice that I'm trying to rectify. But I think the emphasis we place on material items and busyness and importance and to your previous commentary on on the church's power yeah. we are scrambling in the dark looking for something that is bigger than ourselves to put ourselves into so god or goddess whatever it may be and i i, I know i rant there but i wanted to share to you and and listeners that I spiral in this every day to try and find a rooted world and it's getting harder and harder. And then you step into a church and you're like, whoa, I might be the youngest here (laughs) by a number of years. Uh, And that's not right either because I've mates who are going through the same thing, but just doing it in a very different way. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that, it's obviously it's related to wider 
um, societal trends that are common across the West. Um, and, you know, the rise of the big stuff, the rise of uh, capitalism and materialism, it's not unique. Ireland. So we have to say that straight away. But then having said that, I mean, I think the churches in Ireland made some mistakes that um, if these mistakes were rectified, could help address some of these problems. So I think one of the mistakes was, and again, repeating myself, the focus on power and conformity and conformity to a certain outward way of behaving and turning up at mass and kind of creating a laity who were quite passive. I think Irish Catholicism um, last 20th century and before created a passive laity, not one fully engaged. Now, and maybe that's that's not entirely fair to people because I know in the past things like um, the um, novenas and 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 sort of those sorts of things were meaningful for people. I did nourish spirituality, but by and large, I mean the rosary uh, uh, every day in people's houses was a way for yeah. families to come together. Um, so, and I don't think that's happening in many houses, but it was the one moment where people yeah, came yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, so Tom Inglis, who's a, a sociologist at UCD, was television killed the rosary. <laughs> hey, it's true. It's true. <laughs> so, but, but by and large, there was uh, the, the Irish Catholic Church in its pursuit of power created a passive laity. So that's a problem. And then it also neglected some of the traditions of the Catholic states that could fill some of those needs you're talking about, you know. Um, so, you know, some of the, say, like the Jesuit practices of examine and meditative prayer and these sorts of things. I think, you know, that was neglected within the Irish church. Now, you can find it. You can go looking for it. But I don't think it's something that was put front and center and emphasized. And then the other thing um, that the church churches have done, both north and south, is, you know, um, it was clinging to power through schools. <laughs> you know, there's this idea that the Catholic school in particular is going to create a Catholic and it actually just doesn't, <laughs> you know, um, a lot. So, and again, it's helpful here to get some comparative research. So there's been a lot of research in the United States on young Catholics. And um, again, Kristen Smith, who I mentioned earlier, he's done a lot of this research. And Catholic school is actually, and in, in America, you have to choose to send your kid to a Catholic school. And it probably costs money. And a Catholic school does not really make much difference at all in whether that child turns out Catholic. The, what makes a difference is if the parents, both mother and father, go to church. That's important. Um, and, but even that's not enough <laughs> to, to, you know, to really ensure that the, the thing to be adding to the parental going to church is talking about your faith at home. Okay. So that the, the actual intergenerational transmission of faith is not really going to happen unless it happens in the home. You know, those structures that the church created in terms of conformity and education. They may do a little bit, but they're not not the key, the important thing. It's that yeah. in the home stuff. And, you know, like you said, that practice of rosary, to the extent that that could be a meaningful spiritual experience for people, that's what passes it off. And that actually reminds me of, uh, I mentioned Father Jerry Reynolds earlier. I wrote his biography, and that was one of the things that was in his diaries about how as a kid, praying the rosary, and then the trimmings at the end, all the little things that his, his mother and, and uncles and such would, would pray for. You know, that was an important spiritual practice for him. And like, I, I know I bias as I wrote his biography, but he's one of the great Irish Christians of the, of the last century in terms of the role he played in the peace process and, and all that, you know? So there, there was something something there. Um, yeah, I suppose there's something else. No, yeah. So Oh, and the young people, yeah. Yeah, so the absence of young people, that's, that is a big 
trend. Um, obviously, it's not as bad in the north as in the south in terms of um, you know church attendance and so forth. You are, but it's but it's it's declining in both places. And I think um, for this to be you know meaningfully addressed, the focus has to come off the school and it has to be on the either the parish and the congregational level or the the level of the the family and the the church community because. It just doesn't work to rely on and assume that schools are going to produce Christians. And as, but again, to me, that's also the churches seeking that inappropriate use of power through the, through the educational system. That doesn't produce authentic spirituality or um, it, it, maybe it does for some people, but it's it's not the most, um, it's, well, I don't think it's the right way, nor the most effective way for faith to be nourished in the next generation. Um, and added to that, um, there needs to be less of a clericalism as well. And again, the Irish church, especially the Catholic church, but also the Protestant churches, you know, have been criticized for being overly clerical models of church. And, you know, if the church is just not going to survive on this island, if that's, if, they, if that's the direction. It's going to be too wedded to that model. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are other places in the world where, you know, the priest isn't there every Sunday and the lay people do it all. And that may seem like a shocking thing. But if you think back to Stanley Howells' comment, <laughs> if, if the church is going to be dragged out of its passivity, <laughs> if it, this is the way God is killing us by dragging uh, other people into positions of responsibility, you know, maybe that's not such a bad. Just as you were sharing that, it, it reminded me of um, in 2016, I, I gifted myself the 30 days to head off on the Camino. Uh, I ended up coming off, and, and please, anybody listening to this, don't don't take this as a pinch of salt because I ended up coming off with more questions than I had, <laughs> I had going. But I was I was taken back by uh, a group of five men from from a southern state, I believe West Wisconsin. I lie further south. Who a part of their church had uh, four of the five guys were thinking about joining the clergy and going on that journey and. As a community of of churchgoers, paid for and sent the, the, the these guys on. One one was already studying in um, in Italy and had joined the guys, and it was extraordinary to me. Here's young men, probably yeah. uh, like twenty five ish, twenty six ish. The conversations around them were really extraordinary, and and I'm really fortunate. Mm. We have uh, a number of young parish priests that that I have come across my own my own in particular, yeah. and. So it wasn't really foreign to me. Plus, I'm super interested, curious and probably nosy uh, to ask like how they journeyed on this path. And because you don't hear about a lot of Irish young men yeah. joining or, or women joining yeah. uh, the clerical order. But here are these five guys every morning, every evening and various points throughout the day would read from scripture, talk about it. And as they walked, either were confirming where they were going or questioning and yeah. having an open discussion. It was extraordinary to witness you know, and, yeah, and you put yeah. that into today's context and the future of the church, churches uh, and religion as a whole, yeah. I should say, really. Like, where do you see us going as 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 religious followers and as religious organizations? Well, I mean, uh, the the old model is not coming back. <laughs> so and I don't necessarily I don't think it would be a good thing if it did come back, really. I think um, some want so to come I back, do- though. <laughs> well, that that's that's a doomed yeah. project. <laughs> Right. Even if it, it right or wrong, it, it's not. I don't. There's. There's. It's not. That's not going to happen. I'm. I'm fairly certain of that. I mean, but I mean. So what you describe, really, you know, the, the small group and the the minority, I think, is really 
that the, the direction that that things are are headed in, you know, um, and within that, um, I mean, I think it's if I can use the word here, like um, witness, maybe. So not so much, you know, that I talked earlier about, you know, evangelization, trying to convert others to your way of thinking and almost trying to make them just like you. That's not really what the the church should be about. And I don't think it will survive if it continues to try to be about that. But the idea of, of witness. So like, why don't you just describe there? You are witness to people living out their faiths. So there may have been things in that that was attractive, things in that that you found a bit odd or weird. But, you know, that that's a witness. Um, and the ability to do that in a public sphere um, where um, you're not trying to convert anybody to your point of view, where you may encounter hostility, where you may encounter curiosity. I mean, I think that's really what Christians are going to need to do. And um, whether that witness can be compelling enough to, you know, attract people to see, you know, what's good in this sort of lifestyle and what's nourishing in that sort of lifestyle. That is where I suppose um, the rubber, you know, will meet the road. And I mean, I suppose like the Catholic Church to a certain extent is trying to do that through the the synodal pathway um, and so forth. Um, but again, that is, you know, it's institution led. Not everybody has participated in that, but it is an attempt to, um, I suppose, bring more people in and see where they're at, I guess. Um, and to, I, I suppose it, we're very clear, it's not a consultation in the Catholic Church, it's not a democracy, but, you know, at least it, it is showing some interest in people's experience of faith and how they're actually uh, living it out. Like, do you think we'll ever uh, get to the point where priests will get married, uh, have families, women will be more and more on the altar LGBTI people will be able to get married in the church. Like, do you think we're so far away from that, or is that too far? And I don't mean to put you on the spot either, because I, and, and yeah, I don't want yeah, to encompass yeah. all religions together because it's they're not, you know. Yes. Um, nor all priests yeah. or clergy individuals together yeah. because I have in-depth conversations with various priests and they're phenomenal. Um, but can they change the entire structure of the system? Absolutely not. <laughs> but equally, I work in politics and yeah. I can say four years in, that can't happen either. So, which is, which is a bit, which <laughs> is a bit difficult to always swallow. But like, do you think we'll get there or at a case right now, it's the consultation phase, if that's the right way to phrase it? Yeah. Well, I don't think the current synodal process, whether the one in the Irish church or the wider international Catholic church, that's not going to produce it. But I think what that process Right. I think what Francis hopes that process will do is create a way of dialoguing within the church that create makes more openness to these sorts of things. Do you know what I mean? It's about creating a way of communicating that allows more voices to be heard. So it's not going to get to those things straight away, but if it can embed a way of communicating within the Catholic Church that uh, allows for the whole body of Christ to to be heard and for the process to discern and take place, you may get that now. The Catholic Church thinks in centuries, doesn't it? As I've been, <laughs> I've been told. But the thing I said before about religion changes all the time. You know, it does change all the time. It, it, it might take centuries, but it does change all the time. I mean, and the Catholic Church, I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to put a timeline on this, but, you know, we know that priests were married, you know, I was in whatever years ago before the, the you know, the celibacy uh, thing was, was enforced. So we know that it happened before. Um, I mean, I think within the Catholic Church, there'll always be a place for the, um, the celibate uh, priest. I think maybe that place will be the religious orders. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, 100 years down the road, 
you you get back the um the married priest. You might. I mean, I don't know. I don't. Like I said, I don't want to put a timeline on, but I do know that religion changes all the time, and and that the the synodal process, if it works, you know, could create a structure where there is more input from people other than archbishops and, and so forth. It may not work, and it may not actually accomplish that, but. You can sort of see the seeds of that within the process itself. For I sure. think. Is there anything I haven't asked you, Gladys, that you would like <laughs> to put across? Because ultimately this conversation is about challenging biases, naming what's what needs to be named, and and and, and I would hope not put too much pressure on ourselves, uh, but that people listen to this and and go off and and ask questions or look up things or sit and and challenge perhaps what they've heard and and we don't tarnish everybody with the one brush you know that's that's ultimately where i where where i look or as i joking said earlier on you know when when i do get challenged about how i could be lgbtqi yeah. pro uh, pro choice a politician a pioneer and also <laughs> uh, a practicing uh, catholic they're like i just don't un- i don't know what box to put you in it's like well <laughs> that's the problem we're trying to find a space where you can put people um, where in actual fact you just show up and and my 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 rooted belief is to be rooted in in faith and to be of service to the community regardless of whatever form that takes in but is there anything there that you feel people listening need to hear or need to understand from the work that you do and and the fact that you've dedicated uh so much of your your life to it well i mean i suppose to sit into you say that it just it reminded me of um uh someone i know who actually was raised evangelical Protestant, converted to Catholicism. And uh, he was asked, why on earth are you in this church for some of the reasons that you've just said <laughs> in terms of, you know, position on LGBTQ and, and, and Mary Pre all that sort of thing. And he's like, well, it's my church too. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I think um, there's this idea that, um, you know, the institution, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's well, I spoke earlier about sins. It's committed these sins, and it's not reformed itself yet, and you know has sought power when it should have. So maybe we should just leave it. But then there's something in his comment about, but hey, wait a minute, this is my church too. You know, so the, the idea of sticking in there and not leaving it to the the people you disagree with, but being able to, um, I don't know, disagree better <laughs> and and work through some of these things um, uh, as well, and as doing that. Going back to the aspects within the Christi- the tradition of Christianity that have been neglected, you know, probably in Ireland for centuries, you know, some of those practices that that could nourish spirituality and so forth. Um, I mean, I suppose sometimes in contemporary Ireland, um, you know, you'd see stuff about mindfulness, meditation, et cetera, et cetera, from a, quite a secular perspective. And I sort of think to myself, well, you know, that's all there in the Catholic tradition, but nobody's looking for it that there. But it is, but it is there. Um, and it could be really helpful for people. Um, you know, you, I'm not saying don't look in the, the more secular versions of mindfulness or, or whatever, but some of the aspects of the tradition that have ne- neglected being brought back in by the people who will say, well, you know, this is my church too. I've had an experience of God here. And, and that's really important to me. Uh, you know, so just, I suppose, maybe be open uh, to that perspective as well. Thank you. I'm super grateful and I hope all the questions felt like, you know, we were we were uncovering something or sharing something. I certainly learned a lot, so I'm super, super grateful. Well, thank you. Thank you.
glad I shared some incredible insights. When I was thinking about the Parachute Candidate podcast originally, the topic of religion was the first area I wanted to focus on. It is believed 85% of the world's people identify with the religion, with the most popular religion being Christianity, followed by 2.38 billion people worldwide, Islam, which is practiced by more than 1.9 billion people, moving on to Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism. Nearly 1.2 billion people worldwide remain non-religious or have atheist beliefs. And I believe our personal beliefs cannot be captured in the 280 characters of a tweet or in one book or even in one conversation like Gladys and I just had. And so this conversation is, is surely not done. Let me share two of Gladys's books for anybody interested in learning more of her work. First is Transforming Post-Catholic Ireland and the second is The Deconstructed Church. I also highly recommend checking out her personal website, Building a Church Without Walls. I kept thinking after this conversation with Gladys of the poem Self-Portrait by David White and I carry it in my wallet as its rooted reminder for me to be steadfast in humanity and for me really seeks to understand God in everyday manner. And as I shared just now, the billions of people that follow religion and, and don't, uh, this for me is such a close tie of what I think religion is. And, and maybe perhaps for you, you can identify it in some way. It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned. If you know despair or can see it in others. I want to know if you are prepared to live in a world with its harsh need to change you. If you can look back with the firm eyes saying, this is where I stand. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter unwanted passion of your sure defeat. I've been told even in that fierce embrace, even the gods speak of God.